So I have a question. Those of you who uh, especially live in the, the Carson City area, a few days ago, the earthquake we had. So I was outside. We, it was a 5.0 earthquake. Uh, the epicenter was right here in Carson City. So I was outside doing some landscaping stuff and uh, uh, just a shaking like I have never felt in my life. Shaking and the girls came running to the window and opened, Dad, did you hear that? I, and my, the first thing I said was, yeah, Jesus must be coming back. Um, it's the end times. I mean, as you read scripture and you look at the, the signs of the end times and you see, you know, earthquakes and famine and pestilence and, and plague and, and all these things and, and sin running rampant, the question comes up, are, are we in the end times? You know, are these signs that Jesus is coming back uh, in a time like this where we're all locked in? We start to evaluate some things, I would hope, I would expect. I, I hope some of you watching, you're trying out this church thing for the first time uh, because this is an easy way to do it. Everybody else is doing it online, so I'll try it. But here's, here's the question. Are these signs of Jesus coming back? You know, what can we expect with Jesus to return? Now, here's what's really cool. Uh, we've been going through 2 Peter, and we only have two weeks left. This week and next week, we're in chapter 3 of 2 Peter. So grab your Bible and turn there. Uh, but the end times is really Peter's topic through most of this chapter. Uh, he is answering those questions um, about the end. So far in 2 Peter, he's been really, um, addre he's addressing believers, writing to believers, uh, talking about uh, how they are to live with false teachers coming into their midst. So Peter is writing from Rome, probably. Uh, he's close to death. We already saw that in the book. He's expecting to die soon. And so these are kind of his last words. Uh, and, these, and now we're in the last chapter of his last words, saying, here's some things I want you to remember. And I think it's interesting that he ends by going to these uh, Jesus' return and what's it going to look like in the end. So uh, just to make it uh, timely, I'm going to go through these, these verses and kind of do just a running commentary as we look at 2 Peter chapter 3. So I encourage you, uh, grab your Bible. If you have our app, uh, there's notes on there. If you need the app, it's Common Ground Carson. Look it up, download it. Uh, you can take notes. You can even email them to yourself. Um, obviously, you probably know you can... Uh, find your Bible on your phone. There's different version app and other apps. Uh, but grab your Bible. We're going to look at 2 Peter 3, starting in verse 1. Peter writes, This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the old prophets, of the holy prophets, and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. So he, he begins here with wrapping up his letter with two things. He said, I'm, I'm reminding you of things that you've already been told. Uh, he says they were brought to them by their apostles. The, these are probably church planters and missionaries that came, uh, that shared the gospel, that taught them uh, what we have really in the New Testament uh, and the teachings of Jesus. And he's saying, I want you to remember these things. So I'm stirring you up by way of reminder, meaning you probably know these things. Um, and he, he talks about two things. The first one, uh, look at verse 2, that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets. Now, specifically, in 2 Peter, when, when Peter is talking about these predictions, he's referring to Old Testament prophecies of the end times. Old Pre Testament prophecies of, of what's often called the day of the Lord, or Jesus' return. Now, what they didn't know then was that the Messiah, that's who they were looking forward to, the Messiah would come in two phases. The first time he came, it was to save. 
It was to be a suffering servant. But the next time he comes, it will be to reign in glory. And and we're going to get into that a little bit more in this passage. But I want to point out the second thing he tells us to remember, because this one's pivotal for us to remember as we read through, and he refers to it again at the end. But it's the second thing, uh, that we would remember the, uh, the commandments of the Lord and Savior that they received. So these commandments, or actually it says the commandment. So what is that? You know, this, this commandment, as you read through the New Testament and you read through Jesus' teaching, which is found in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there's actually a lot of commandments. So the question is, what is he referring to? Uh, and, and most would agree, really, that he's, he's referring to the greatest commandment, where Jesus said the greatest commandment is this, that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, that you love your neighbor as yourself. So, so all the commands really fall under love. But they don't just end with that. You know, you can then interpret love the way you want. The Bible doesn't let us do that. Jesus then gives us examples. And so there are moral commands. And so this, this commandment is really a way of referring to all the moral demands of the Christian faith grounded in that command to love. So Peter instructs us to remember all that Jesus taught about living a godly life. You know, all that Jesus taught about living a godly life. And if you want some more details later, go back in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through 8, and we see a little bit of a list where he says, make every effort to grow this godliness in your life, this Christ-likeness, and he gives us some specific examples in there. Now, you know, if you're tuning in and you're hearing this, okay, the commandment is a moral law, I want to make clear, you know, salvation is by faith alone. Peter is not talking here about us fulfilling rules to be right with God. What he's talking about is being saved by faith, and then after we say yes to Jesus, then we want to become more like Jesus. Because of his, him saving us, uh, the Holy Spirit indwelling us, we start to love what he loves, and he starts to change our hearts. Uh, 2 Corinthians says that we are new creations. And so that's when this, these new actions, these good works start to take place. Uh, so just make sure it's not a salvation by works, but a salvation that works. So now... Peter's going to go back to the first one where he said, remember the predictions of the holy prophets. Look at verse 3. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in these last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. What's he talking about here? So earlier in the book, he's been talking about false teachers, and now he refers to scoffers. This is probably a different group than the false teachers, although it could be some of them. But these scoffers, what do they say? You know, first, actually, we see how do they live, and what do they say about us who believe in Jesus? How do they live? Well, it says here that they freely engage in sin. They're following their own sinful desires. So these scoffers, you see their lives. It's what we might hear today, do whatever makes you happy. You know, the the Bible and its moral requirements for the believer, those are how to date. You know, those are are some old book. They don't qualify now. So whatever makes you happy, as long as you're not hurting somebody else, go do that. That's what these scoffers are doing. Do we see any of that in our world today? 
You know, those who, you know, marriage can be whatever we want it to be. Gender can be whatever we want it to be. You know, sin, alcohol, we can go down the list. Marijuana right now, all this stuff. Whatever makes you happy, as long as you're not hurting somebody, go do that. So that's how these scoffers are living. But then what are they saying? So they're, they're scoffing at believers. Those who are saying, our Lord Jesus, he left and he promised to return someday, and, and the early church really did expect him to return in their lifetime. And so now these scoffers are saying, he hasn't come back, and so he's not. It doesn't say whether these scoffers even believe it. It's just them judging the believers, them judging us, saying, hey, you guys believe that this Jesus is coming back? Well, he's not. And in response to these critics, Peter's going to give examples of God intervening in history. He's going to show that these scoffers are wrong. You know, Jesus promised to return. You know, again, we experience this scoffing today, don't we? I think this book is so relevant right now. You know, those who have really bought into the faulty science of evolution. And there's many of those, those intellectual elite out there who look at us and go, we can't believe you still believe in that Jesus thing, that Bible thing. It's all been proven false, which it hasn't. In fact, science more and more backs up what the Bible teaches, not what evolution teaches. And so, so they look at us and scoff. And sometimes, especially if you've gone to college at a secular university and you've gone as a believer and you actually share what you believe, the professors will come against you, the others. I mean, there is an attack against believers that what we believe is stupid. And we obviously know that's not true, and the Bible makes very clear. And what's the example Peter gives? So these scoffers are saying this. Now, now Peter is going to give us a way kind of to rebut that. So they're saying, you know, ever since the fathers, this is verse 4, uh, fell asleep, that means died, all things are continuing. So, so they're saying nothing's ever changed. Let's look at history. You know, things don't really change. It just goes on and on. And now Peter is going to give us something to look at. He's going to give us uh, examples of God actually intervening in nature, in the world, showing us that he will do it again. That's his point. So look at verse 5. For they, Peter's referring to the scoffers, for they deliberately overlook this fact, fact, hear that? This fact that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. So here's the first example he gives. So these scoffers say, nothing's ever changed in creation. And Peter says, here's the first evidence. Our world was created by God at a point in time. The world did not exist. And even those who believe in evolution believe there was a beginning. They trace it back to this big bang. And, and you know what? When God said, let there be life when he created, there might have been a bang when he said that. But the impetus in creation was the word of God. It was God, the person who decided in a point of time to create. And so that is first evidence. Again, these scoffers, Jesus isn't coming back. Evidence is nothing's changed because God hasn't intervened in the world. First example, yes, he has. He's intervened in creation. And the evidence of creation really is clear. As you see in that verse, verse 5, they deliberately overlook a fact. What does that mean? It means they know it to be true and they choose not to believe it. They choose to overlook it. In the book of Romans, Paul says it this way. For what can be known about God is plain to them, meaning all people, because God has shown it to them. 
For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Paul's point there, and what Peter's saying here too, is everybody who's ever lived can look at creation and go, there's something more. You know, evolution, natural causes cannot explain what we see. Uh, the, the design, you know, how everything fits together just perfectly shows us there is a creator. And then we, we then ask, okay, there must be a God. There must be a creator. So what is he like? So those of us who are honest with what we see, then now we enter in, what is God like? And for us to know what God is like, he must reveal himself. He did in the person of Jesus. Before Jesus, he revealed himself through his holy prophets, the Old Testament, then in Jesus, and now we have that written down in the New Testament. So God has revealed himself. He wants us to know him. Now, there's a second example that Peter gives. First is creation, and you see water in creation. If you read Genesis 1, water, there's a lot of water involved in creation where God separates the waters from the waters, probably the sky from the earth, uh, then separates the waters on the earth, making land. And now he's going to refer to another historical fact that we find in Scripture referring to water. Look at verse 6. And that by means of these, that means the water, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. What's he referring to here? The time of Noah and the flood. That God intervened in earth. He intervened to judge sinfulness by causing a flood. God judged the people of earth by wiping the slate clean with water. You know, read in Genesis and you'll see this event that the world had become so corrupt that God started over, he, he found Noah, a righteous man, and he said, hey, go build a boat, and he built the boat. You've probably seen the pictures, you remember the stories, but as you've gotten older, maybe gone to college or gone out there, now the world is saying it's crazy to think that, that a flood covered the earth. That's impossible, no way. Well, you know what? The God who can raise the dead, Jesus raised the dead, that's center, central to what we believe, he could flood the earth also. So God judged by a flood. He's using those examples to point forward to the prophecies that God will come back and to judge. So, because he's done it before, he will do it again. Look at verse 7. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. This is a big point. Now, this isn't supposed to be our focus, but this is a big point. We need to understand what's he saying. The same word, the same God who spoke and created, then spoke and flooded the earth is going to do it again. But this time, he's going to judge through fire. He is going to cleanse the, the heavens and the earth that we now see with fire. He promised not to do it with water again. And he gave us uh, the rainbow yeah, as a promise. I'm not going to kill everything uh, with a flood again. But he is going to cleanse it with fire. A day of judgment is coming. Look at these verses, or that verse, verse 7. Uh, it is being kept. The heavens and earth, they now exist, are being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Now, here's the thing. Right now, there are many within the church and without who say, if there's a God and He exists, and if God is love, that means He won't judge. That a loving God would not condemn somebody to hell for eternity. 
A loving God wouldn't do that. But, but here's the thing. There's two problems with that. The first is that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches very clearly judgment and punishment for what we see here as the ungodly. Judgment and destruction. Now, this destruction is not annihilation. As you take the whole of Scripture in and look at the book of Revelation and other places, this is actually eternal existence in a spiritual form separated from God and all His blessedness. And so this day of judgment is coming. The Scripture says in Romans 5.8 that God demonstrates His love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So, so here's the thing. You know, judgment is coming, and who deserves judgment? Everybody. You know, let's leave that verse up there. Think about that. That everybody deserves judgment. The Bible says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So we're all really destined for eternal separation. We're destined to be part of this judgment and destruction. But God, and in his justice, he has to do something about it. So you see Romans 5, 8. He demonstrates his love that while we were still sinners, while we were still stuck in that destination toward hell, Christ died for us. What's this talking about? The penalty for sin is death, but Jesus paid the penalty. You know, again, think about this, that, that God is love, but he's also just. He, he, he also needs to be fair. And I want you to think about justice. You know, imagine there was a judge. And, you know, and, and before the judge came this murder, he was found guilty by a, you know, by a, in trial. And at the end, the judge said, you're found guilty, but... You get to go free. What would we think about that judge? That's a bad judge. You know, that's not a judge doing his job. So, so God here is a good judge. He must see the sin and he must judge the sin. And the penalty for sin is death. But listen to what Paul writes in Romans 3. It says, We are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over the former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now there's a lot of big words in there, but I want to kind of hone in on, on the back, on the last couple of verses. It says that he is just and justifier. And the rest of that verse this passage describes that. God is just, sin requires judgment. God is justifier, meaning he took the punishment for sin. The penalty for sin is death. Without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins, the Bible says. But God became a man, Jesus Christ, died on the cross, took the sins of the world on his shoulders to make himself justifier. It was like that judge who ruled, you are guilty, and you deserve punishment. And then the judge takes off his robe, walks around, puts his hands out, and goes to take the punishment. God is just and justifier. So this judgment is coming, but guess what? We can avoid it. It is for the ungodly. We're all ungodly, but this in context, the ungodly is those who do not, by faith, accept what Jesus already did for them. They do not place their faith in Jesus as Lord. Listen, God will judge. So take advantage of the opportunity we still have and repent. Turn to Jesus for life, forgiveness, and salvation. So look at verse 8. Verse 8 and 9. It says, 
But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Listen, these are the verses we need to focus on. Peter refers to the judgment coming because we need to know that. It's a warning. This is coming. But here's the focus. The focus is on God's love and his forbearance. You know, look at this. Uh, again, he's addressing the scoffers who say it's been so long. I mean, right now people will say that was 2,000 years ago that Jesus came. He hasn't come back, so he's not coming back. Well, here, uh, Peter refers to that by quoting from Psalm, Psalm uh, chapter 90, and, and he says that, do not overlook the fact, verse 8, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Now, real quick, what does that not mean? That does not mean that every thousand years is one day with God. People have taken that very literally and forever have, have tried to extrapolate, well, that means that this is when Jesus returns. Uh, that means that the earth was created in 7,000 years. That's not what this means. What this means, and as you, as you read Psalm 90, you'll see exactly what it means. It means that God is outside of time, that God does not see time the same way we do. And so the point is really verse 9, that the God, God is not slow for you, you say, okay, it's 2,000 years, he's slow. God is not slow, but he's patient. And why is he patient? Why has Jesus not returned yet? Because he wants more to come to repentance. This is, I'm so excited about this time right now. There, so this past week, we did church like this last week. We had so many more views. I think so many more people have had exposure to the gospel because we've gone online. Not just our church, but all the other churches around the nation and around the world so many people are hearing the gospel now, maybe for the first time. How awesome is that opportunity? Now, now, there's some horrible things happening. But I can see God glorifying himself that during this time, more are going to have the chance to repent, to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. God is delaying Jesus' Jesus's return and judgment because in his love and patience, he desires more to repent and find true and eternal life. True and eternal life. This is what he's waiting for. He's waiting for people to say yes to him. Now in verse 10, he's going to refer to that day again. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Now, again, the main focus of this passage is that God is patient, Jesus will return, and we need to say yes to him. But here we see four things about that day. I want you to look at these real quick. Four things about the day of the Lord. So I asked the question at the beginning, are we in the end times? Are we seeing signs of the end? Well, here's four things about the end. One, Jesus' return will be sudden and unexpected. So are we seeing the signs? Yes, we are. And I think every generation since Jesus left could say the same thing. I think we can say it more. But every generation can look around and go, we see the signs laid out in Scripture. So he could come back any moment. There's a couple weeks ago when we were still meeting, and I said that same thing and then waited for him to come back, and he didn't. So maybe he will this time. But he could come back today, tomorrow, the next day. Here's the second thing we see. The sky will be burned up. Again, 
It says the heavens will pass away with a roar. That roar is probably because he's talking about fire, uh, the sound of a roaring fire. And here heavens is generally believed to be the sky. So the sky, the created sky will be burned up. And then the next one depends on your translation. Mine, the ESV says heavenly bodies will be burned up. Most translations say elements there. And so the debate, that's either the planets, the sun, the moon, the stars, or that's the elements of the earth. Uh, you know, earth, water, all those things. It could be either. The point is that it's all going to be burned up. It's all going to be judged. And you see that again in verse, or as you move on, point four. The earth and its works will be exposed. It, here's the whole point. In that day, whenever that comes, suddenly everything we see is going to be burned up and cleansed, kind of like during the time of the flood. Again, we can debate the details, but sin has not just impacted mankind, it's impacted all of creation, and God is going to cleanse and renew. We're going to talk more about that next week as we look at the new heavens and the new earth, but he's going to cleanse and renew. It's not the end of time. It's the end of this current age, and then it's going to transition into the age to come in the new heaven and the new earth where those who in this life reject Jesus will not be there. They will still exist separated from God in a place called hell. That's why this is such good news for us to see that we still have time to repent. We still have time to turn to him. In light of Jesus' return, also let's follow him and grow in Christlikeness. That's verse 11. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? So here's our application. If you have not said yes to Jesus, say yes today. Today is your opportunity to say yes to Jesus. Uh, Jesus is waiting. You know, God is not this cosmic judge just out there you know, trying to get us. God is love, but he also must judge. But he's waiting and he might be waiting for you, for you today to say yes to him. He loves you. And, and I think, again, some of what's going on right now is God in his love trying to reach people that he wants reached, that might tune in to a podcast uh, or, or a video, ours or other churches. Great. If that's you and you want to say yes to Jesus today, here's how you can do it at Common Ground. Just take your phone and text uh, FAITH to 775 461-2017. Uh, and that's going to pop up. You can write that down. If you're on Facebook, that's going to appear below. But text the word FAITH to 775-461-2017 and we'll get a hold of you. Fill out the, the short form and we will help you say yes to Jesus. But for the rest of us, let's live in light of His imminent return. Let's grow in godliness. Let's grow in holiness we're going to talk a little bit more about that next week. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, uh, we do ask you to return soon. As the book of Revelation, the last book in the Bible ends, it says, Lord, come back quickly. You know, we're waiting for you. And as we look around this earth, we see it groaning. You know, in Scripture, it talks about the earth, not just people. We're groaning in pain. We're groaning in sin. And the earth itself is, is groaning, waiting for you to come back. We need you desperately. Holy Spirit, I ask you, as you're present here when we gather, be present in the homes right now of those listening. And if anybody there has not said yes to you, we're saved by faith in what you did, Jesus, that you died and rose from the dead. We're not saved by works. That they wouldn't think they need to get their act cleaned up and then come to you, but that they would take a step today to say yes to you. 
that they would text faith to that number, that we could help them understand what it means to follow you. They would experience salvation because of what you've done. And God, I pray that, that during this time of change, uh, the rest of us who have said yes can take an opportunity to look at our hearts and to grow in godliness and the power of your Holy Spirit who indwells us. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.